conquer your fears and embrace your shadows. Each and every week here on a brand new Shadows podcast. I'm your host, Trip Odenheimer, and welcome to a whole new look and a whole new feel. We're fresh off of our season finale, Rise from the Shadows, season two, Behind the Mask. It was an incredible season centered around self-discovery and growth. Hopefully, all of our listeners have some key takeaways from each of those episodes. I know I had some. I personally grew a lot by listening to everybody else's powerful messages. If you haven't already done so, go check out all of season two at theshadowspodcast.com or on all available podcast platforms. Now, we're also available on YouTube. So if you haven't done so, head over to our YouTube channel, hit the subscribe button, hit the notification button, and make sure that you don't miss one episode. And we're starting things off here with this episode you're listening to this week, Tim Worley. So once you're done here, head over there, check out the video as well. Finally, before we kick this episode off, we had a giveaway for the Shadows Podcast coffee and book package. Moments before hitting record, I conducted a drawing, and the winner is Victoria Barsness. So congratulations. You have coffee, books, some Shadows merch coming your way. Folks, stay tuned to our Instagram page as well, because we're going to be doing another one of these giveaways to celebrate our 100th Shadows podcast episode on Monday, November 14th. So once again, we'll be giving away more coffee, more books, more merch on November 14th. This week, we welcome Tim Worley to the Shadows Podcast. Tim was a high school football and track standout at Lumberton High School in North Carolina. He was a highly sought after recruit and eventually committed and signed with the University of Georgia. After being the seventh overall selection in the 1989 NFL Draft, he played a total of six seasons with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Chicago Bears, but derailed his career with drug and alcohol abuse. So listen as Tim is humbled, transparent, and vulnerable with sharing us his inspiring redemption story. Before we get going, we're going to do something new here on The Shadows each week. Our guests aren't the only ones who are encouraged to do some self-reflecting. Let me set the stage. Tim Worley had a historic run against the University of Florida at the Gator Bowl in 1985. That's perhaps his career highlight. Georgia fans still talk about that play. And during this play, Tim takes off downfield towards the end zone and is being trailed by Florida Gators cornerback number 23, Curtis Stacy. With everything he had, there was no way Stacy was able to catch up with Tim. Now, fast forward 40 years later, Tim explains why he's continued running and has never been caught by that number 23. And you'll see what we mean when you listen to the episode. Now, the question for all of our listeners this week, you can keep this to yourselves, you can share it with someone close to you, you can send us a message here at The Shadow, we'll keep it to ourselves. What are things you run from on a daily basis? What are the things we run from in our lives? Ladies and gentlemen, it is now time for The Shadows Podcast featuring Tim Worley. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Shadows Podcast. This is our first episode back from our little sabbatical we had. We recently did Rise from the Shadows, Season 2, Behind the Mask. 
uh, really good, really powerful messages we had delivered for you there. And for me personally, today is a really cool opportunity for me. I was telling them before we hit the record button uh, for about a season there. I was a, I was a standout running back at the Tim Worley Flag Football League in Lumberton, North Carolina. Uh, he's my second Lumberton guest that I've had on here, which is also pretty cool for me. But he was an All-American running back, high school and college, University of Georgia. In 1989 NFL draft, he was first round pick, seventh overall to the Pittsburgh Steelers, spent some time with the Steelers and Chicago Bears. Now he is a minister, motivational speaker. Tim Worley, welcome to the Shadows Podcast. Hey, thank you, Tripp. Appreciate you bringing me on board. Oh, absolutely. This is this is something that, like I told you, I've been talking about with uh with people for probably about a year, year and a half. And one of the first things I want to get started with is uh, putting you f- through our quick, uh, <laughs> our fearful five questions. This is something that the more research and the more I talk to our guests, they said they're, they're dreading the, the first five questions more than they do talking about themselves. First one for you. <clears throat> Best running back of all time. Walter Payton. Walter Payton. You, you didn't get to spend any time with him in Chicago, did you? I uh, met Walter not a lot of time, but um, I hung out with him two or three times, you know, okay. got to know him a little bit, but not like I wanted to. Right. Sweetness. Yep. Someone recently on the uh, podcast, John Janata said he was uh, a rookie with the Chicago bears and he said he was having problems with, I think it was like Steve McMichael or somebody. And he yeah. said that he was having a, a <clears throat> fit in the locker room and Walter Payton called him over and was, and made him sit on his lap and, <laughs> and talk to him. And he's like, I, that was the most uh, it, it, I could have had an option of my father or Walter Payton. I probably would have picked my father to go sit on his lap. <laughs> That's crazy. What, what is your book recommendation for everybody? If you could recommend one my book. book, one book recommendation. Yep. The Holy Bible. <laughs> Best leadership book out there. Yes, it is. Yeah. Speaking of which, when are you going to be writing a book? Um, You know, when uh, I was married to D, um, Dion D. Worley, she was my she's my ex-wife now, formerly D. Foster, uh, gymnast at Alabama. Um, she, we started up my book together years ago. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I don't know if we got halfway done or whatever, but I've been talking to a couple of people, even a publishing company. Yeah. Uh, talking about a few things. Uh, and I think I think I might get started back on that maybe at the beginning of the year. Nice. Um, there's so much I got to write about and to tell, you know what I mean? And, mm-hmm. and, and you know, hopefully, um, you know, the whole goal is to help people. Yeah. You know, okay. So, yeah, well, you, you know, I probably, probably, probably start that full fledged, uh, probably next 2023, you know? Okay. So yep. we, we got a lot to do here. We got a Ted talk going, we got a, a book we got going. So we, we yep. got you a little to-do list here. <laughs> go, go to movie. Go to movie. Oh man, uh, Maverick, Maverick, Top Gun okay. Two, yeah. I, I still haven't seen it. Yeah, it's streaming and everything, and I, I still yeah. have not watched it. Well, you know, I'm I'm uh, I'm big into uh, fighter jets and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I and listen, trip. I sit and watch. I'll put on go on YouTube, put my headphones on, blast the volume, and watch fighter jets take off and stuff. I'm weird like that, man. <laughs> I'm Air Force. I got nothing wrong with that. That's good to me. <laughs> That's good to me. So you could have one job for a day just to try it out. What would it be? One job for a day? Um, wow. Mm. 
Let's see. One job for a day. Um, I would like to have maybe Bobby Flay's job, like one of the top chefs, Okay. you know, in the world. I love cooking. So, you know, just to cook in front of an audience and, yeah. and talk while I'm cooking. You know what I mean? Go-to dish. Oh, man. Uh, seafood. Seafood. Okay. Yeah. You like a surf and turf or a straight up seafood? Um, I like kind of like a surf and turf, but my my best style of seafood would be would be with an Italian spin to it. Mm. I, I love a lot of garlic. Yeah, I love a lot of garlic. You know, a lot linguine and pasta. You know, angel hair pasta and oh, yeah. clams and shrimp and lobster stuff like that. But my favorite seafood is uh, the uh, Chilean sea bass. Okay, best piece of fish that you can ever eat. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I had some nice. Italian seafood uh, during my time in Germany, uh, wow. traveling around. So yeah, I, I you were speaking to my stomach right there. <laughs> yeah, I'm now, hungry too, man. Now, this this is something new that I'm I'm actually trying with our guests. Final question for you: What is something that you fear? Something that I fear. Um, I fear. Now, today, I fear um, my grandbabies and all the young people that are born and living today. I'm talking about kids, elementary, middle school, and even high school. I fear that them really being damaged, mm. uh, harmed in their minds and in their hearts and in their lives with the way the world is today. Because, you know, social media. Yeah, I, I'm 56 to I'm 56 in, a, in, in 28 days. And. You know, we grew up, I grew up, it was basic times, man. Now it's just very dangerous. And I don't want my, the young people to grow up in a communist country, man. And it seems like that's where we're headed. Yeah. You know, and, and it's, it's, I fear that, you know, but I want to do something about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely different times. The cancel society and everything like it is. It's, it's yeah. crazy, crazy times. Yep. Uh, all right. So you survived those five questions. Now we're going to actually jump in to your okay. story. So talk to us a little bit about your upbringing in good old Lumberton, North Carolina. <laughs> well, first of all, Lumberton is very country. Um, Lumberton is a population of no more than 21,000 people. Um, it sits in Robinson County, the second or maybe the first biggest county, largest county in the state of North Carolina. It's in the southeastern part of North Carolina, right next to uh, South Carolina, Dillon, South Carolina, um, between Dillon and Fayetteville, Dillon, South Carolina, Fayetteville, North Carolina. Fort Bragg is right up the street. Um, we're about an hour and 20 minutes, maybe an hour and 30 minutes from the beach. Um, um, but growing up here, um, you know, we did a lot of uh, tobacco cropping. We, uh, we raised chickens. You know, some people had hogs. We grew our own vet fruit and vegetables. And um, um, it was just a a great place to grow up. You know, we really, we really, um, took sports serious. It's all we had, you know, everybody plays sports, everybody. And, um, I was just one of them that really took it serious. You know what I mean? Uh, every sport, um, trip, I was able to play just about every sport at a very high level, even, even basketball, you know? Um, and, um, you know, man, I, I really enjoyed growing up. I look back now and I thank God that I grew up the way I grew up. You know what I mean? Just a, just a country boy, you know, and then I got introduced to the city life as I got older. <laughs> well, you mentioned you were 
you excelled at several different sports. I know you said previously you were kind of torn between baseball and, and football, right? Yeah. Yeah. What made baseball, you go to football route? Yeah. Baseball was my, my best sport. I love baseball more than any sport. Uh, baseball and track and field football. I love football too. I love them all. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But my, I, I felt like I was a better athlete um, at baseball than I was football. And the reason I chose football was because um, from a, from a, from a teenage standpoint or just a frustration that, you know, teens and kids can grow up with, yeah. you know, in your environment, it was an outlet for me. So, um, you know, being able to put on about 10 and a half, maybe 15 pounds of equipment and go out and drill people in the chest and in the head and, 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 you know, without getting locked up, you know, I wanted some of that, you know what I mean? So yeah. I said, yeah, that's for me. And I just, I was, I was just a rough physical guy, man, on the football field. I, I wanted to lay people out, you know, and uh, what people don't know, I really didn't start running the ball, running the football until my freshman year in high school. All the other times I was like a linebacker and center and, you know, played on the old line. Cause I always, I was always too heavy to, yeah, you had to, that you know, size. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? I've always had that. I was long and lanky, you know, I started putting on the weight once I hit high school, but, um, Baseball was my number one sport um, trip. I actually had a 93 mile per hour fastball when I was 16. Wow. And uh, yeah, the Pittsburgh Pirates scout came and worked me out. Um, a long it's a time. Nice a little contract people, today. Yeah, a lot of people don't know nothing about that, but if there's, a, there's a handful of people here that knows about it. They remember. Um, basketball, I felt like I could have played basketball at small colleges. You know mm. what I mean? Not, not, not you know, Division One, but at small colleges, I average, um, I want to say 14.5 points a game for three years in a row. Yeah, two uh, guard. Year. Excuse me. Two guard. Um, actually, I was a power forward, man. And mm. I would play I would play two guard when I had to, when the coach wanted me to. But I was a power forward. I was 6'2 and about, I was almost 6'3, six, 6'2 three, six, and three quarters. And, and I had a 41-inch vertical. And I just, uh, I was just like a, a bull under the boards, man. Yeah. And um, um, so, but that, played that. And of course, track and field just took over. Track and field was like just just automatic, you know what I mean? And, and all of a sudden, track just began to take over the, the, bat, the baseball because they were played at the same time. And um, so I had to choose one. You know, I just, uh, the coach didn't want me to play both, so I had to choose one. So track took over. So yeah. football and track became my thing. You know, yeah, and you won state 100 and 200 meter dash. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, my uh, my quickest time 100 meters, I was clocked at a 1032 uh, 100 meters, and my quickest time 200 meters, I was clocked at a 20, I want to say a 2089, 2091, something like that. Wow, um, I was a consistent, consistent 105, yeah. uh, 104, consistent 21 flat. Uh, 200 meters and um you know six two and about two 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 twelve two fifteen my senior in high school ran a four two three in the 40 you know what i mean and uh just just uh it was crazy just a freak of nature kind of i guess <laughs> well i do want to ask you said something you're talking about football allowed you that outlet to to get off those teenage frustrations and aggression where do you think that was stemming from um i think um I think it stemmed from just uh, uh, growing up in my community. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in, in, in the neighborhood that I grew up in, you had to fight, man. You had to know how to fight. 
You know, yeah. you you if, if you didn't know how to throw those hands or those feet, you know, you 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 got your butt whipped. Me and my brother, I got an older brother that lives in Jacksonville. He's a retired Navy. You know, we all took you know kickboxing and taekwondo, but he took it to the next level. I never did. I stopped it when I got in the NFL. Right. So you had to know how to fight, man. And um, but I think it just came from, um, you know, just. Seeing what I saw in my community as a kid, I saw a lot of drunkenness. It wasn't a lot of drugs around that time. People smoked marijuana, but I saw drunkenness and alcoholism all throughout the neighborhood. And, and you know, a lot of deaths from, from, from alcohol. And, you know, that spirit still lingers uh, in areas in my hometown, you know, and uh, people are still doing the same stuff. But... Uh, and I was, you know, it was frustrating to see that because I had a lot of family members that were participating in that type of type of activity. Yeah. And I always told myself and said to myself, you know, I would never be like that. I would never do that. But you got to be careful when you judge people, man. And when you say things, because, you know, you get faced with those same issues one day, you yeah. know. So. OK. Yeah. Well, you, you definitely uh, stood out on the football field. Uh, Parade Magazine, high school All-American, and then the recruiting process started heating <laughs> up for you. Oklahoma, Clemson, Georgia. I always love to ask, especially previous athletes, what was it that made you go to Athens versus, I believe Clemson was the other front runner for you, right? Yep, Clemson. You uh, you won't believe this, Tripp. I, uh, this, is, this is the uh, order of my choices in, in this order. Oklahoma was my number one choice. Okay. Barry okay. Switzer. Yep. Danny Ford at Clemson was number two. Yep. Uh, Bobby Bowden, Florida State was number three. Vince Dooley, Georgia was number four. Johnny Majors, Tennessee was number five. So Tar Heels okay. got no love in there. Tar, Tar Heels, they were in the picture until my senior year. Okay. Um, and because I just didn't, they had a head coach named Dick Crump. And, yeah. um, I just, uh, he just had a dry personality and I just couldn't connect with him. He's no man. And so I decided, I was like, you know, and, and, and I guess, I don't know, Trip. maybe I was being a little arrogant and, and egotistical, but, you know, I went to a game there one time and they were playing like, uh, I don't know, maybe Bowling Green or I don't know, somebody. Yeah. And uh, me and Todd Ellis, if I can remember, you know, he was the number one quarterback in the state of North Carolina back then. I was the number one tailback. And we both was there, like, just watching the game. It wasn't an, an official visit. And um, he just didn't have much to say. Yeah. And, and, you know, here I am, the number one tailback in the in, in the state of North Carolina, and I'm the number three or the number four tailback in the nation, and he don't have much to say to me. You know what I mean? So I was like, wow, okay. Well, I guess I won't be coming here. But, you know, the whole plan was for me, I've always been – I'm a Tar Heel at heart. Yeah. I am a Tar Heel at heart, especially basketball. Um, oh, you yeah. know, I got a chance to – Meet Michael Jordan and Lawrence Taylor and all those cats when I was in high school, 16 years old, man. And Al Wood, he's a, he's, you know, he's a friend. I he's played golf speaker. with him a couple of times. Huh? He's a good speaker. Oh, yeah. Al's great, man. Me and Al did a function in Salisbury, North Carolina, about about three or four years ago. About four years ago. Yeah. Um, and uh, Al's a great golfer, too, man. But um, people don't realize Al's from Georgia. He's from Macon, Georgia. So he he's a bulldog at heart. You know what I mean? And so oh. when I went to Georgia, he was kind of like loving that. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, uh, well, but yeah, man, um, came down to, uh, you know, those five schools. And I was headed to Oklahoma, brother. 
I was, I was like, I fell in love with Oklahoma, fell in love with just the way they do things. And, you know, they promised me uh, that um, they would switch back to the I formation, come out of the wishbone and switch back to the I formation offense, like what they did Marcus Dupree. Yep. And uh, they were going to do this for me. Right. But I was like, okay, I'm there. You know what I mean? And at the time, Trip, they had uh Barry was the head coach, Barry Switzer, and the offense coordinator was Jim Donnan. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh ended up becoming the head coach at the University of Georgia in the late 90s, right? Yeah. And uh, but when they came to present the University of Oklahoma and their football program at my my mother and my father's house here in Lumberton, um, it this it just didn't go right. My mom got a bad feel just about Barry Switzer. She just didn't, she didn't, she didn't like him. She wasn't no, she didn't like wasn't him. feeling it. Huh? Huh? Just wasn't feeling it. She wasn't feeling it because she felt like he was too arrogant. He was very arrogant. Mm. Um, he was tapping my mother's coffee table, glass coffee table with his boots. He had on some snakeskin boots. And he kept the tip of his boot kept hitting the table, right? And she, you know, I could tell she was getting a little little PO, you know what I mean? Yeah. And uh she let him, she let him, you know, do his pitch and you know, present. She gave each school, each person 30 minutes. You know what I mean? And uh she let him do his thing, walked out the door, turned around, and she said to me, is that where you want to go to school? I said, yes, mama, that's where I want to go. She said, well, I'm sorry to disappoint you. You're not going to that school. And I asked her why. She said, because that man is disrespectful. You know what I mean? And uh, and she was just telling me what went down. And I knew it. I could see it on her face. I seen her whole demeanor change. And so she, this is what my mother told me. She said, she said, you need to get Danny Ford, Vince Dooley, or Bobby Bowden on the phone. Call one of those schools there. And tell them you want to go there. And I'll be satisfied with that. So I ended up, when I when I ended up getting Oklahoma out of the way, of course, Coach Switzer was pretty, he was pretty, he was pretty upset. Donnan was really upset with me, right? Right. And so Donnan, we sat down and talked for an hour. Like a week later, we talked. And when we talked, he knew that I was my I was totally wasn't coming to Oklahoma. He said, Well, if you're not gonna come and be a sooner. He said, Tim, I know where you I know where you're looking. He said, the best place for you, and that would be the perfect fit, and you will be a legend. This is what he said, man. He said, is the University of Georgia. He said, you will be the next Herschel Walker and then some with your style of running. Mm-hmm. And I was like, really, coach? He said, Yeah. And so I took that in consideration, right? And because Georgia, out of all the schools on an official visit that I took, Georgia was my worst visit. You know what I mean? I just didn't have a good time. Yeah. And, and uh, I had a great time in Oklahoma. <laughs> but uh, but and and all of a sudden I end up at Georgia. I think I was destined to be a bulldog. You know what I mean? And I, ha- I have no regrets about the University of Georgia. Yeah. I, so. Danny Ford It's funny. You mentioned uh, Clemson because Danny Ford, I, I heard some stories about him. He actually came and spoke at a touchdown club and was talking about how he was eating pig's feet at a recruit's house. And yeah. he had never had pig's feet, so he put it in a <laughs> napkin and stuck it in his blazer pocket, but it bled through. And he, he tried to go flush it in the toilet and ended up clogging up the person's toilet. Oh, my uh, goodness. Didn't sign the recruit, believe it or not. But, yeah, yeah I, I always like to, to hear that. So that, that's pretty cool. You end up at Georgia, yeah. Coach Dooley. What, what memories do you have about Coach Dooley? Well, you know, before we get to Dooley, you know, Danny Ford, uh, it came very close to him, too. Um, my mother liked Danny Ford. And the whole thing with me and Clemson was um, because they didn't take me fishing, crappy fishing. That's the reason I didn't go to Clemson. That's the story at Clemson University, right? Makes sense. Yeah. But anyway, um, but 
great stories with Coach Dooley. Um, you know, he was a he's a man that um, I was just with him um, a week and a half ago when we buried Lars Tate, uh, my mm-hmm. my one of my best friends. Uh, you know, he was in the backfield with me at Georgia. Awesome backfield. Yeah, man. And um, um, I saw him there. He's almost not, he'll be 90 years old next month. And we talked and he's still sharp as a tack, man. Um, but Coach Julie was just one of those guys, man, when you would just, you feared him, you know, just the respect, you know, and he was like a general, man. Um, his words, his his demeanor, everything about him, man, you wanted to please him. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But one of the things, one of my best memories with Coach Dooley, it's not when he got angry or anything. He was he was, he was like a, a wild man when he got angry. He he rarely got angry though. But one of one of the things that I remember is when, you know, we were we were playing against, I don't remember who he was playing against, but anyway, I'm standing there and he comes up behind me, Trip, and he puts he puts his hands on the spine of my back, you know, and I'm towering over him, you know what right. I mean? And, I'm, and, 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 and he said, uh, he just said, uh, what do you think? I said, coach, give it to me. I'll go over the top. Let's do it. You know, when, when, when he did that right there, just his touch on my, on my, on my back yeah. and asked me, what do I think? Man, I would have, I would have went to the moon for him. I ain't no way that defensive going to stop me from getting in the end zone. Yeah. You know what I mean? So that was one of my best memories of him, man. Just, just to, you feel like a warrior when you get his okay. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. So, and that's awesome. You talk about anything solidifies your decision to go there. Just hearing a story like yeah. that, and then that relationship you have today. So you get to Georgia, uh, big man on campus, eighty-five season. Y'all go. Y'all had a weird record: seven, three, and two. Yeah, uh, it's like a lottery ticket: seven, three, and two. You you beat Clemson, who had just been yeah. recruiting. You beat them early. And then you had an incredible run against Florida. 421 to go. That Gator defense needs to get the ball back some way. Chanting the signals is James Jackson. And he pitches and the pitch goes to the near side. about that whole process was one of the things we as a University of Georgia football player there's two games that they talk about maybe three you know Florida was the number one game okay it was like a a mid-season bowl game right um Georgia Tech was the second and then Auburn you know of course it's the oldest deep south rivalry uh in football so uh you had to beat Georgia Tech you know what I mean being the state rivalry but the border rivalry was Georgia, Florida. Mm-hmm. And so that game was the most talked about game out of all the games. So that week of practice, we were just, it was just intense. And you can imagine how it was back then. You know, we had a day called bloody Tuesday where we just, we went at it, you know what I mean? And um, we prepared for that game and you know what trip some, th- they were ranked number one, man. And we were ranked like number 15 or 17 or something yeah. like that. And uh, nobody gave us a chance. Nobody, you know, they figured Florida was going to beat us by like three touchdowns, you know. And, man, we just, we went in there. And as soon as we got on that field and 
uh, and just started locking up with them. Every single guy on the team that played, we knew that we had an edge. We just knew because we, we, we just knew we had an edge over them because it seems like we were taking it to them and they were just, they wasn't, they wasn't really giving us, you know, what we expected, you know? Right. And man, we got out in front of those guys. Our defense played well. Kerwin Bell, I mean, he had a field day, but they didn't score any touchdowns. And uh, we're smacking them. Keith Henderson goes off, you know, and 76-yard touchdown. Then come back and run another 30-yard touchdown. You know, we're both freshmen. He fullback, I'm tailback. And then, you know, at the end of the game, with about three or four minutes left in the game, we're just trying to, you know, get a first down so we can hold the ball, right? Man, he called a 58-tall sweep <laughs> to the right. I got that ball, man, and tucked it. I saw that crease open, open up trip. Gone. I hit that thing. I was like, it, literally, it was like a bullet. I hit it so hard. And what people don't understand and know, my shoe came off. Really? I, I didn't see it, that. Yeah. Yeah. When I hit it, you could see me. I kind of went up top, and then I came down. And when I came down, my shoe was off. It was hanging off my foot. Not mm -hmm. fully, but almost off my foot. So the whole time that I'm running trip, I'm trying to put my shoe back on. And all of a sudden, it went back on, and that's when I kind of, like, cut across the field. You cut the to the middle of the field. Yeah. Yeah. He couldn't catch me, man. There's no way he was going to catch me. But yeah. he was running after me, man, and all of a sudden, you know, in the end zone. And, man, I just, you know, everything was quiet to me the whole time I was running. The whole time I was running trip, all I could hear was this. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> but, and uh, once I got in the end zone, I heard the Rawr! And I'm like, oh my God, this is crazy. And they tore up the field, man. You talking about you talking about something amazing. That's yeah. what most of the Georgia fans remember about me. And uh Keith Henderson is just that day we 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 just we pounded Florida. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And then I mean, incredible run. You can find it on good old YouTube right now. Uh yeah. then y'all y'all bowl game. Tied Arizona 13-13, come back the next year. And well, actually, before we get into next year, I got to ask you this because I'm curious. The whole NIL, the transfer portal, all that stuff that they got out there right now, what are your mm -hmm. opinions on that? Well, I mean, it was a long time coming trip. Yeah. I mean, and I, and, I, and I believe, I mean, you know, kids, you know, we get, we get scholarships. The NCAA was very strict. And once you're on a full scholarship, you couldn't work uh until the summertime um and the money that we got from from the ncaa was uh 46 bucks every every quarter every three quarters to to uh do laundry and um so you know i can understand you know i can see because there's a lot of guys even though they got scholarships their families just didn't have money and there mm -hmm. were times when guys was just you know late at night hungry and have to beg for stuff you know what i mean and um but my opinion, you know, I want to thank Brian Bosworth, Bosworth, uh, you know, if it wasn't for him, he started that. He started that in 1987. He was a character. You know, I, I almost became his teammate. So Brian was fussing about that stuff way when he was an Oklahoma player. And Chris Webber you know what did I mean? it too at Michigan. Yeah, Chris Webber. Oh, yeah, but, but in the 80s, man, yeah. Brian was like, and, you know, NCAA gave him a hard time. The boss. Um, yeah, the boss, man. But my thing is, you know, the players should be able to, 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 you know, especially if people wearing your jersey, chanting your name, they're using your image, you know what I mean? All this stuff, you know, you got people in the, in the, in the, sitting in the stands, 100,000 people wearing number 38, my jersey, mm -hmm. or wearing number 34 or whatever, you know what I mean? And you get nothing from that? 
Yeah. You understand? I mean, I understand where they're going, but if they're going to do it, this is my take. If you're going to do that, put that stuff in a trust fund, man. And when they graduate college, you know, give it to them. Everybody's yeah. not going to go to the pros, you know, put some aside, have a little salary, a little light salary throughout the year, put some aside. And then when they finish, you know, there's, there's a couple hundred thousand dollars available for them to get them started when they graduate. But yeah. see, my thing now, the way it's set up now, it's going to harm a lot of people. Because let me tell you something, Trip. When I was 19, I wasn't thinking the way I'm thinking now at 56. When I was 19 and you would have put a couple hundred thousand dollars in my bank account, I would have killed myself. Yeah. I would have killed myself. And you're going to start seeing if they don't get a grip and get this thing in order, because it's kind of chaotic right now. Because there's kids making hundreds, millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. And if they don't get a grip on this, man, these young kids are going to harm themselves, man, bad. Yeah. And a lot of them right now are already thinking, I don't have to go to, I don't have to go to the pros. I don't have yeah. to go to the NFL. You know what I mean? But, you know, this these are the times that we live in. And I'm not hating or anything. I'm just looking out for the kids, man. I mean, think about when you were 18, Trip. How were you oh, thinking? I, I would have. I, I thought about that the other day. I was reading, like, the top 15, 20 college athletes and how much they're getting paid. And I was yep. sitting there reading that, and I was like, 18, 19 years old? I would have blown every bit of it. Yep. Yep. And then probably ruined myself in the process. Yep. Yep. And that's what you're going to see, man. If they don't get things in order and yeah. uh, see, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm working with a couple of guys, man. Uh, you know, I don't want to let the cat out of the bag, but we want to form an alliance, man, a group of guys that can help these young guys, you know, to keep them uh, focused and keep them in a place where they're not going crazy with all this money, man. Yeah. 19 years old and you got, and you got, you got a half a million dollars in the bank. Mm-hmm. Come on, man. That's, That's this, is, this is crazy, but this is the world we live in today, man. Very true. Well, yep. So you come back 86 lofty, lofty expectations, Lars Tate, Keith Henderson, yourself in that loaded, loaded backfield. And you're coming off a of freshman year. You had 627 yards, nine TDs. Uh, we talked about that, that historic run against Florida and then take everybody back to what happens October 4th against Mississippi. Wow, man. We, um, we had started, you know, they predicted, um, that's when we took the four horsemen, you know, in spring, uh, spring training of 86, um, we had such a good freshman year, Keith Henderson and I, and the backs did so great. Um, you know, they started calling us the four horsemen. That's a badass poster too. Yeah, man, we went and took, we went to a Kenny Rogers horse farm and we took pictures on his horses, real horses, man. And it was, it was kind of, Coach Dooley didn't really know what to do with it. The, the, yeah. the, the PR people really didn't know what to do with it at that time. This is 1986. Yeah. And you know, we're young cats, man. And, um, but we come back into the, to my, my sophomore year and I can remember, you know, the great expectation they was predicting us to be sophomore, uh, SEC, uh, players of the whatever uh, all americans all that stuff and um i remember man we opened up with duke we yeah. opened up with the university of duke man steve sperrier was the coach and um steve recruited me when he was at duke <laughs> you know and uh it's crazy but and this is when we got introduced to the first time ever we opened up with a split backfield and in the shotgun and the, mm. and, the and the georgia people went crazy they never seen that before you know what i mean but um we ended up having a pretty decent game. We beat Duke, Duke up pretty, pretty rough. And I think we ended up going 
to South Carolina, maybe the next you had game. Clemson then South Carolina. Yeah, Clemson. Clemson came to Athens. A very it was like a hundred degrees that day. Yeah, and uh, we got beat by field goal. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know Keith Henderson and I we were we were the starting backs, starting tailback, starting fullback. You know that season. And then we ended up going to South Carolina. Had a big game. Um, had over hundred yards and one touchdown. That's when James Jackson laid the ball down on the ground. Um, when there was like time on the clock and, um, but the rule was you couldn't advance it anyway. But, um, and then we came back to Athens that next week and played Ole Miss. And I'll never forget this trip. It was the, our first offensive, uh, thing, uh, my offense, uh, what do you call it? (laughs) I lose train of thought, but our first offensive series, right? Yeah. Offensive. um, Yeah. The series and, Man, just a just an off off tackle play to the left side, and got positive yards, about six six and a half yards, and um, I went, guy hit me, and I'm planting my foot, my left leg while he hit me, and I'm trying to spin out of it and trying to fall into the first down, and right when I planted my foot and begin to spin, um, linebacker clamp, I mean just plant down on my knee, mm. and my knee just went inside, yeah. you know, and I've never felt anything like it. It was like my knee felt like a noodle, like a, just a limp noodle. And I got up and ran off the field, but I could tell something was wrong. I didn't know it was that serious. And then when I got to the sideline and they checked me out, the doctor just, he moved my knee around a little bit. He was like, oh, he said, you're finished for the day. And this was the first quarter. Yeah. I was like, oh, man, he said, you're finished for the day. Might be finished for the year. He just knew. And I was like, oh, man, you know, so. That that knee injury, I tore my interior cruciate tore to all the ligaments on the inside of my knee. Man, um, it hurt me so bad. And I just, you know, I had a big cast on my leg and um I had to wear that around for six weeks and I had to catch a van, a special van to class. And I was so humiliated, man. And I guess I didn't understand. I was just prideful. I stopped going to class. Yeah. I stopped going to class. I didn't go to class for about two months for about a, two months straight, man. And I ended up becoming an academic ineligible. You know what I mean? And in other words, flunked out of school, you know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, So I had to go to a junior college in uh, Miami, Oklahoma. And around that time, I started thinking about Oklahoma again, transferring because I was, you know, I was being a, I was being a little kid throwing my suck in the dirt. Georgia don't care, don't care. You understand what yeah. I'm saying? And, and uh, so I was kind of, talking to some of the coaches at Oklahoma, some of the coaches at Clemson, Auburn, you know, Alabama. And, uh, but you know, my mom said, I just need to stick with Georgia, go and stick it out. Yeah. And when you complete your deal at the junior college, just, just going back to Georgia. So that's what I did. Do you, so do you think if the transfer portal would have been like it is now that that might've been an easier decision back then? It would have been definitely easy. I probably would have transferred. Yeah. And um, because, you know, like I said, I was thinking like a 19 year old would think, yeah. you know, I threw my suck in the dirt and, you know, the world revolved around me. Yeah. Um, and, um, and, uh, you know, if we didn't get what we wanted, we pouted. So, but definitely would have transferred probably to Oklahoma mm-hmm. or Clemson, those two. Um, but you know, my mom, we talked and I was glad that I made the decision to stay at Georgia. Uh, Ray golf came out to, to the junior college to visit me and talk to me and that kind of settled things down. So, I knew once I went back to Georgia that I would be right back to business. Yeah. But here's the thing. When I, 86, it was the fourth game of the season. Okay. I didn't play no more for two years. Mm-hmm. Okay. So in 87, I didn't get a chance to play at all. 
I had to sit out because of academics. Mm-hmm. Total academic probation once you flunk out of school, right? And so all of 86, I missed every game except four. All of 87, every game. So, Trip, really, I played two full seasons at Georgia in three games. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, I, only, I can only imagine if I would have played four full seasons without injuries. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Um, but um, I was able to come back in 88, and, uh, you know, it's history from there, man. I was so determined and so, like, a man possessed, ready to get back on that field. And I was unstoppable in 1988. Yeah, 80, 88 was definitely – a huge year and I was going to ask about your your mentality finally getting back on the field but what wasn't it in between that time where you got introduced to alcohol uh drugs for the first time yeah I um you know I got introduced to drugs right after I blew my knee out because I was a I was a I was a straight laced guy I didn't drink I didn't do anything man but once um my freshman year you know I saw guys drinking beer during the week I thought it was a sin you know what I mean uh but after I blew my knee out, man, I started, I started to drink beer. Uh, and then three months later after that, man, I found myself putting white, white coat, white powder up my nose. You know what I mean? And, uh, yeah, late eighties. Uh, yeah, man, late eighties. And, uh, to be honest with you, man, both the alcohol and the cocaine, I said to myself, where in the heck has this been at? You know what I mean? Yeah. Because the way it made me feel and, uh, and so sporadically, you know, from time to time, you know, those are things that, that, you know, I would do. Uh, uh, wasn't nothing crazy, but you know, uh, once or twice a month, you know what I mean? And, um, but by the time, you know, we'll get into it when we talk about the pros, but that's the first, that's when I first engaged, uh, with drinking and using cocaine was in, uh, late 1986, you know, around October, 1986. Okay. So you, you go into 88, uh, at that point when you're, you're starting to get back on the field, how would you say your drug and alcohol use is going into that 88 season? Oh, it wasn't no problem. I wasn't, uh, the, the cocaine wasn't, wasn't, wasn't a problem for me. Right. It wasn't nothing that I looked to do or nothing that I craved. It was something that I did, uh, 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 once or twice, and maybe even once, you know, like, like at a party, uh, it wasn't nothing that I desired to do, right. but you know, every once in a while I would have a beer or two or a couple of drinks when I went out, you know, I was 21 by this time and, uh, um, drank a cold Miller light, uh, or something like that, or, 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 a tangeray and cranberry, you know what I mean? And uh casual drinking. But it was it wasn't anything, it was just casually drinking because I was so focused, Trip. I was so focused on the 88 season. Yeah, nothing was gonna stop me. And um, so I come back into that season, man. It was uh, you know, by this time you got you got the great Rodney Hampton, he's he's a starting tailback. You got Alfonso Ellis starting fullback, God rest his soul, and and then men keep come back in, man. And we just we just like we were like just horses man in that backfield and uh by the middle of the season i think by the i don't know maybe maybe the fourth or fifth game of the season i'm the starting tailback you know what mm-hmm. i mean because because you know my play was just so obvious and i just out I, I, I couldn't be stopped trip i couldn't be stopped and i think 88 we had we played mississippi state you know we had a big game the opener with tennessee you know mm-hmm. rotten hampton had 199 yards i had 160 yards and two touchdowns and came back the next week, played, um, um, I want to say Mississippi state. I had four touchdowns and 180 yards. And, and that's when coach Dooley was like, this dude is, this dude is consistent. You know yeah. what I mean? So 
and by this time, you know, I'm, I'm starting tailback and, you know, but we were, we would alternate, we would rotate, but I was a starting guy. Yeah. And y'all finished nine and three, 15 in the country. You beat Michigan state in the Gator bowl to go out. I mean, what a cool way to end your, your college career, getting a bowl game win back then when, when bowl games were legit, like 12 bowl games, it's not now where you have a, you know, a, a Hulu.com uh, edible arrangements bowl and all this other stuff. Uh, yeah. so it was a really big deal to get a bowl invite back then. <laughs> April 23rd, 1989, the NFL draft. Mel Kuyper uh, pretty much hit the nail on the head with your, your pick to the Steelers. But that yeah. draft, it was crazy. The first six picks went in like 21 minutes. Yeah. Uh, and you look back, it, it was a pretty stacked group with Troy Aikman, Barry Sanders, Deion Sanders. And here's the commissioner with the seventh overall selection. Pittsburgh Steelers, first round selection. Running back, Tim Worley of Georgia. Next up, San Diego Chargers. Well, Mel Kuyper hit that one on the head, and really you figure it's the next group of four or five guys. Tim Worley is a tailback, but the man is, some rate him ahead of George Rogers coming out of college. The size and the speed and the quickness that he has. Uh, rushed for 1,200 yards last year, 17 touchdowns last year is an excellent blocker. The knee injury, which he suffered uh, in the sophomore season, he has uh, recovered from the youngster from Lumberton, North Carolina, Ken Lumber, 221 pounds, Tommy, and tackling a tailback like that is, is uh, no easy task. 220-plus pounds running a just over 4-3-40. This is unbelievable because this is the reason I quit football. This is the reason <laughs> I got out. Well, we, uh, personally at ESPN, we're glad that you did. <laughs> Uh, so Tim Worley now becomes a member of the Pittsburgh Steelers. Where, what was the pre-draft process like? And then where were you at on draft day when you heard your name called by the Steelers? Okay. Pre-draft, um, I immediately declared myself eligible for the draft after the Michigan State game, the Gator mm -hmm. Bowl. And, uh, you know, Ray Goff, he um, called me and Keith Henderson to his hotel room. You know, this is the night before the, the bowl game because – Nobody knew, but he was going to become the head coach. And we, mm -hmm. we were two, two, the first two players that he told because we were juniors. We were redshirt juniors, so we had another year. And, um, you know, I was play, I played so well, and people were predicting me to go in the top ten in the first, and I couldn't pass that up. Yeah. I didn't want to take a chance on blowing my knee out again, right? And so I let Ray know what I was going to do, and, you know, he, he honored that. But um, – that whole process of after the bowl game and everything, um, it was a lonely process. It wasn't like today where these guys hook up with other trainers and, 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 you know, uh, work out people and do all this stuff. I was a loner and I had to train on my own. I had to take time and train on my own and stay in shape. And, um, we wasn't allowed to go to the combine then red shirt, red shirt juniors, you know, uh, Barry and I, hmm. I think Barry was a red shirt junior too. We he were the, was. we were the, who, uh, the rest of the guys were seniors, Dion and Derek Thomas and all those guys, they were seniors. And so um, I think there was a day in March, um, April, uh, no, March, uh, all 28 teams, uh, it was 28 teams at the time, Trip. all 28 teams came and worked me out in Athens on the artificial turf field, right? And all they wanted to see me do was uh, run the 40, uh, do the, uh, the vertical, and that was it. They knew I was strong as a bull, but you know, I, I just wanted to show them what I was, what I was capable of. Right. right. So um, I ran the 40 twice. The first time I ran the 40, I was, I think I was, I was about 230, 232. I ran a four, three, eight. 
I ran a 4.38 at two, 230 pounds. And then I ran it again. I think they clocked me at a 4.35. Um, um, and, uh, but they always post at 4.4. I don't know why. But anyway, and then they, we did the vertical. And all the teams watch. And my vertical was like a 38, 38 and a half inches, something like yeah. that. Um, and then they said, that's it. We don't need to see anything. I said, you guys don't want me to lift? And I said, I'll lift. You guys came. Well. And, and they said, sure. You know, a couple of teams like, nah, we don't need to see no more. And But I wanted to lift anyway. I wanted to show them, right? Yeah. So I took 225, and I did it 28 times. Not bad. Okay? Right? And they were like, okay, that's all we need to see. Yeah. Now, check this out, Trip. A lot of people don't know this. Barry Sanders hadn't yet declared, declared himself for the draft, yeah, right? I think his came down to a probation thing with Oklahoma yep, State. Yep. Yep. And, yeah. and, and listen, there were three teams that wanted to talk to me personally. One of them was the, the Falcons, uh, the Detroit Lions, and I think the Green Bay Packers. Okay. They wanted, they pulled me into the office for about five minutes and we just talked privately. Right. And here's what the Detroit Lions told me. They said, listen, we run the run and shoot. We're looking for uh, a Barry Sanders type guy, his style. We like him, but we don't know for sure yet if he's coming out. He hadn't declared it yet, but they said, if he don't, this is what they said, man. They said, if he don't, he said, we will take you with the number three pick. And I, I was saying to myself, no, you won't. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because, you know, Detroit, man, uh, nothing bad about Detroit. But you didn't Detroit want to go there. Rough, you know, back then. And, no. and I was like, okay, okay. You know, I would have went anywhere. I'm, I mean, I, I didn't care. But, um, and I was like, wow, okay. And so Barry finally, finally, I think a week later, declared himself eligible. And so um, I was talking to the Falcons. I was talking to the Packers. I was talking to the Chargers. Uh, and the Steelers jumped in the picture big time. They just, I mean, they just jumped in there mm -hmm. and just everything. They're just showing me all kind of interest, right? And so by the time, um, you know, my draft, all of my people that I hired, they were in Los Angeles. Hold on a second. I'm on the phone. They were, they were in Los Angeles in Beverly Hills and the people that I hired, um, a PR firm and a sports agent, lawyer, everything. And uh, we had uh, my draft party at the, uh, I think it was the Beverly Palm Hotel where Eddie Murphy did uh, Beverly Hills Cop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's <laughs> yeah, not a bad spot. Started. Yeah, man. And so we invited all the, all the guys. We invited USC players, uh, UCLA players, everybody that was in the area. Oh, nice. And um, man, that morning, like you said, the, the first six picks went so fast. And the next thing you know, I was gone, you know? Yeah. And I could read Pete Rosell's lips when they was on it. I had already got a phone call. Anyway. And they brought the paper up. Yeah. Yeah. And I, had, I could see him. He said, Tim Worley. I could see it, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I can't tell you the feeling that I got. I just got a chill. You know what I mean? And um, um, that, that was that was just an awesome time, man. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I'll try to get the clip posted uh, either on the Instagram page or something, but it was really, really cool moment for you. I'm sure you you had a little bit of a holdout. You actually signed on 18 August, a uh, very lucrative deal, three years, 3.5 million. What was with the holdout? Yeah. Well, you know, back then, uh, guys, hell, uh, the Pittsburgh Steelers wasn't known for paying players. Yeah. And back then, you know, you really had to go in and negotiate. You know, people wasn't giving up money like that. And um, so, you know, Trip, um, I'm still the first rookie um, in Steeler history to get a million dollar signing bonus. Yeah, it's like I was, I'm, I was, I didn't really didn't know this, but I'm the, still the highest running back ever drafted in Steeler history. 
and mm-hmm. I'm the first rookie to get a million dollars. You're going to start and tell back. Right, right. And so um, so that was huge. And, and um, I missed all the training camp except like four or five days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I mean, it harmed me, but, you know, we had to get it done because, you know, they, they were known for not paying players and not giving up the money. Yeah. And I had a guy, he was, you know, Doc, Harold Doc Daniels. He was a bulldozer, man. And some teams like working with him, some teams didn't, but he got me the money, you yeah. know, but I still think he could have got me more though. <laughs> well, what, what for you was the biggest adjustment between playing uh, college football and now you're, you're here in Pittsburgh. What was the biggest adjustment for you? I think, um, not that I think I know it's just mentally, mm-hmm. um, you get to a point where you the biggest adjustment as far as the game itself, the physicality of the game was from high school to college. There's a huge difference. Faster, much more physical. You know, in high school, I dominated. You know, I just got the ball and took off, played defense too, dominated, dominated people. Yeah. And then I had to take my time and learn. I really learned how to run the ball and take my time when I got to college and spring practice and stuff. But I learned the speed of the game. And then I saw myself, I, I felt like I could dominate on the college level. And see, when I got to the pros, the pros to me was not that different from the SEC. Mm -hmm. And it was more more mental focus, mental preparation, because everybody's good. And the sorriest team, the worst team in the league can kick your butt on any any given Sunday. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so you had to prepare mentally. You had to watch film. You had to do a lot of film study. You had to study those guys. You know, when I came in the league, you know, you had Lawrence Taylor, Mike Singletary, Ronnie Lott. Those guys that would take your head off, you had to you had to see where those guys were at all times. Yeah, you know what I mean. And so uh, that was the biggest adjustment to me. And then trip trip you had, you know, when I went to Pittsburgh, I had to I had to force myself to go home because I was so programmed as a college athlete that I thought when I left practice that me and all the guys were going back to the dorm room. I forgot that I bought a home. You know what I mean? And I had to I had to make that adjustment from a program to a business, to mm-hmm. an employee. You know what I mean? And it took me a while to do that because I was so much I was sheltered all of my life as an athlete. You know, and I had to make that adjustments. And then the huge adjustments to me now that I look back was knowing how to properly take care of yourself, how to get the proper rest, how to how to stay in and not get carried away with the freedom that you have with the money that you have with all the girls that's out of you you know i had to i had to learn how to do those things and back then i didn't know how to do it yeah i didn't know how to get the proper re- i would stay up late at night stay up to four o'clock in the morning have to be to practice at eight o'clock you know what i mean but you know my little 20 year 20 something year old body could take those things but you know i'm pretty sure that had an effect on me in the long run oh yeah yeah, and, and you get there, and that's where your story kind of takes a little bit of a turn, and you started to uh, have some issues with substance abuse. And talk yep. to us about how that kind of cut your uh, tenure with the Pittsburgh Steelers a little short. Well, you know, I felt like I was the that quality, that caliber of running back. I felt like uh, could have, should have, would have. You know, if I was focused, I could have played 12 years. Mm-hmm. 14 years uh, even with the style of play that we had back then it was very physical um but you know i planted a seed i started something back in Athens when i when i hit when i snorted that first line of cocaine back in 1986 um 
little did I know that that seed was gonna was gonna grow up to be an oak tree. You know what I mean? And um, it became an oak tree. And by the time I was, uh, you know, my second or third year in the league, you know, um, partying and snorting cocaine was like a weekly thing for me. You know what I mean? I um, didn't do anything during the game, but during the week, you know, you, you know, you just hang out, you with girls, you're drinking, and you snort a couple of lines of coke. You know, and all of a sudden, it just it just started to take over trip. Yeah. And um, next thing you know, man, um, you know, I'm failing drug tests. You know, not knowing that the, the the chemical was in my system, and you know, you fail that drug test when you fail that first one, that they put you in the system. Yeah. And so you gotta you gotta see a counselor, and you have to, you know, um, give a sample, uh, a urine sample, uh, at least once a week. And, you know, and here I, here I am, the way I was thinking, I, man, I don't have a problem. I just got caught. Any crime until you get caught. That's what you're thinking, right? Yep. And then the next thing you know, man, I'm knowing that I got a drug test the next day and I'm still up sniffing cocaine late at night and trying to figure out a ways to beat the test. And, you know, and by this time, you know, I, I failed my second test and then the third test, you know, it knocked me out for a year. Yeah. They suspended me in 1992 for an entire year. And, uh, you know, with incentives and everything that, that I had in my contract, I forfeited close to a million dollars that year. Wow. Yeah. Isn't, isn't, that, isn't that crazy, man? Yeah. That's so crazy. I look back now and I'm just like, wow, man. It's like you were talking about earlier with the, the whole NIL stuff. You're at a young age. Yeah. Yep. I mean, I'm sure now looking back at that, you're like, what in the world was I think? But that, yeah, it was, yeah. It was mentality. Wasted so much time. And, you know, I value my time. I don't waste time today. And, uh, you know, even the money, the money was great back then. You know what I mean? I was, I could buy anything that I wanted. Yeah. You know, here I am, you know, I got five or six, like hundred thousand dollar cars, man. What did I need that for? Yeah. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, big Mercedes and Porsches and motorcycles and everything, you know, just showing off. What did I need that for? Yeah. I don't need that stuff. It doesn't mean a hill of beans. Yeah. You know, but that's the mentality of, you know, back then when you didn't, I didn't come from money. I come from a lot of love. And all of a sudden I got, you know, I got a couple million dollars, you know, close to a million dollars in the bank. Okay. What are you going to do with that? You know, <laughs> it's crazy. You requested to get traded, correct? Yes, I did. Um, a lot of people in Pittsburgh, especially the fans, uh, they thought that, um, Bill Cower and I were had, were beefing. They thought that we had a grudge against each other, but it wasn't like that. I went to Coach Cower, and I asked him to trade me because I just needed a fresh start. Yeah. And one of the things that people don't understand, I think the, the Steelers, even through all that stuff, all the the drug stuff, the trouble, the fumbling, everything, the Steelers still believed in me, and mm-hmm. they brought me back after my suspension. And in '93, I actually had a great preseason. But Barry, Barry Foster was their guy. You know, yeah. when I when I forfeited the 92 season, Barry Foster stepped in and he had 1,600 yards. Dude yeah. played ball that year, right? And the Steelers still bought me back. So I played a little bit of second team tailback and a little bit of third team, a lot of special teams. But uh, I was frustrated. I needed – I didn't know how to adjust sitting on the bench like that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so um, – I kind of went about it the wrong way with my attitude, but I had a talk with coach Cower, man. I said, coach, you know, he, he saw me in practice one day and I was just stretching. He said, uh, how you doing, buddy? I can remember the conversation. I said, coach, I'm a little frustrated. He said, I know I could tell. He said, what can I do for you? 
I said, Coach, can you shop me around before the deadline, trade deadline in October, and, and see if there anybody need a running back of my caliber that can come in and play right away? He said, you got it. And so he did it, man. And he came back to me a week later. He said, there's four teams interested in you right now to come in and play right now. And he said, the Chicago Bears, the Green Bay Packers, I don't know why, the NFC North, Green Bay Packers, the Arizona Cardinals, and um, um, I think it was the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Got my so boys, chose, Cardinals. Yeah, okay, I chose uh, Chicago because, you know, Dave Weinstead had just came there. You know, he was a, he was a uh, Super Bowl champion, defensive mm -hmm. coordinator with the Cowboys. I was like, man, and plus, you know, Chicago, Michael Jordan, nightlife. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, the Bears, you know. And so, and the Bears always been my number two team. Steelers always my number one team, yep. even before they drafted me. And so I ended up, you know, I ended up uh, um, after the New Orleans game. Uh, I, I remember I came in late, late that month, that morning. We didn't have practice on um, Tuesday. Came in late that morning, sat out on my couch, turned on the news, sports. Steelers running back Tim Worley had just been traded to the Chicago Bears. I was like, what the? I was like, what the heck? You know what I mean? That's what I wanted, Trip. But it, yeah. I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> so that's and how you found time, out. Tim, yeah, by that time, five minutes later, I get a call from the Steelers organization. You know, you need to come in. We need to talk. And uh, I said, I'll be right there. I went in and talked to the Roonies and talked to Coach Cowher and everything. And, and uh, the Bears couldn't wait to get me in there, man. And, yeah. you know, it all set up. And, you know, that evening, 630 in the evening, man, I was on a plane to Chicago from Pittsburgh. And uh, next thing you know, Monday night, I'm returning kicks for the Bears. <laughs> yeah, the Bears had what, Rashad Salam back then? No, they had Neil Anderson. Neil, Neil Anderson, Anderson, he was he was kind of fading. Um, they had um, Ironhead Haywood. They had uh, Bobby Christian, uh, Robert Green. Uh, Rashawn Salam didn't come in until 95. 90, 95. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And what yeah. were your what were your memories in Chicago? Oh man, when I first got Chicago, I loved it. I, I fell in love with Chicago because uh, you know um, I think. I got there in the, like October 21st, 18th through the 21st or something like that. And um, the first couple of games, I just, you know, returned kicks, really didn't play. Just wanted me to return kicks with Curtis Conway. And um, I think around the third, third or fourth game that I was there, I think it was the Raiders or somebody. Mm -hmm. I started to play. I started to come in and substitute Neil. And then after that, man, they had me starting, you know, played good against the Chargers, played good against the Broncos, played good against the Packers. Uh, had a real good game against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, mm -hmm. you know, and so I ended up being we we rotated we rotated Neil and I, but I was just starting tailback. It was a new spark for for the Bears, my style. And what got you to the point where you're like, all right, I got to walk away from football because you were only well, with the Bears for what two three years? Two years. Um, two years. Um, you know, the my old ways of thinking started creeping back up, mm -hmm. but this time trip it didn't hit me um in the way of using drugs um depression started to sit in on me for some reason i didn't know it i didn't even know that i was you know clinically depressed you mm -hmm. know with all the things that i had you know the money and everything all the toys and i was literally depressed because in 1994 you know i finished strong in 93 with the bears right real strong so i was they was uh expecting me to come back come back that 94 season and be the starting tailback. Mm -hmm. And um, I got into a little trouble in the off season, got, a, got into a run-in with the police in Chicago. And um, so when that hit the paper, 
you know, they felt like they needed to recruit another another running back. So they got Lewis Tillman from out of New York. Yep. And uh, he, he was Rodney Hampton's uh, teammate. And they brought him in. And so it was just me and him. And uh, they ended up basically, uh, I don't want to sound bitter, I'm not, but they gave him the job, mm-hmm. you know, because of my troubles. But um, here we go again. I'm repeating 93 again with the Steelers. And here I am not playing as much as I want to. And knowing that I, I felt like I was a better player, I know that I was a better player and mm-hmm. I'm not trying to be arrogant or anything, but um, um, man, so, you know, depression set in. I remember we were scheduled to go to Detroit and play the Detroit Lions and trip. I drove to the airport in Chicago, O'Hara. And there was a certain spot that we would park our cars, the players and the coaches. I parked my car in a way that they couldn't see me. And I sit and watch the plane fly off, pull on the runway and fly off. Oh, wow. I didn't even get on the plane. I got him, and I just sat in the car. I stayed there after the plane took off. 20 minutes later, I drove back to my home and just went and got in the bed, man. Next thing you know, everybody's calling. Where It's on the news. Where's Tim Worley? Tim Worley's missing. But I didn't know that I was dealing with, like, deep, dark depression like that. Mm-hmm. And so I went to um, uh, Minigers in Topeka, Kansas, like a dual diagnosis uh, um, recovery for drug and alcohol and for depression. And um, I got on antidepressants, man. And uh, they helped a little bit, but, you know, I didn't like taking that stuff. You yeah. know what I mean? So they had me on a, um, 1994. They had me on a, what do they call it? Uh, inactive. Inactive, uh, whatever they call it. I can't, not injury reserve, but inactive. And um, so the 94 season, man, I, I missed uh, probably 90, 80% of that. Mm-hmm. The second half of the season. And um, then they brought me back, you know, brought me back in 95. And um, I ended up getting released in the spring of 95. That's when Rashawn Salam came in. Yeah. And um, and so I called it quits. My agent wanted me to try out, you know, the Green Bay brought me in. Uh, uh, Arizona still wanted, was interested in me, uh, even the Canadian League. But, man, I was like, I don't want to play no more. Even though I went and worked out for them mentally and in my heart, I said, I don't want to play this no more. Yeah. And then I had a car accident and I cracked my pelvic all the way through. So that did it. Wow. So yep. at that, that point you're like, you're done with the game. And w- what did you start doing after that life after football? What was your, your plan B? Well, that's the scary part trip. Um, I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, I lived off the, the, the money that I made for, for about four or five years. And uh, you know, when you're not replenishing the money, um, you run out. And so yeah. one of my biggest fears was going out, getting a nine to five because all of my life, since I was 10 years old, I was sheltered and I really didn't plan for life, you know, for life out the football. I thought, you know, I would be an athlete all of my life. And I thought that was my only identity, but uh, I was in for a rude awakening. And so I had to go get a nine to five, man. You know, I did some things, did a little, uh, uh, did some, uh, Radio works, you know, I called my, um, ended up calling uh, my high school games and stuff. I did some coaching with some kids in Chicago, uh, came back to North Carolina, did some coachings, went, went to Georgia, did some high school coaching, but it wasn't what I really wanted to do. Yeah. And um, so I was searching and searching and searching and searching from 1995 all the way up until 2008, man, I was just in a fog. Yeah. What am I going to do? What am I going to try to make that adjustment to a normal lifestyle? And finally, man, um, 
you know, I had a moment in 2008 where I was suicidal, bro. I think I was just dealing with depression again. And um, that's when I got tased by that police officer in Atlanta. It's April 12th, right? Uh, what, what was that? April 12th. April 12th. Yep. 2008, man. Um, yeah. um, I was trying to get that police officer to put a bullet in my chest. Well, and, you you uh, told him to follow you, right? Yeah, I, 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 I walked out of the bar. They saw me. I walked out. I was about maybe 75 feet away from him, maybe 100 feet. And I just yelled at him, man. I said, follow me. You know what I mean? And they yeah. immediately got behind me, pulled me over about three minutes later. And, and um, I was looking to pick a fight. I just tell you where my mindset was, because I, I felt like I wanted to die. And, um, you know, what do you do when the cheering stop, Trip? You know, yeah. you know, I didn't know what to do with myself, man. And I felt like a has been and, you know, nobody cared. And so I was pretty much trying to, to put myself in harm's way to get that police officer to put a bullet in my heart. Right. And um, so, I, you know, I, I struck the police officer, you know, and, and when I struck him, he didn't know what to do. He tried to spray me with mace and I turned my back and I started to walk away. And instead of shooting me with that 40 caliber or 45 that they have, he hit me with that taser. And uh, I thought he hit me with that 40 when he shot me with that taser because that thing harder than Lawrence Taylor ever had. Hey, it dropped me like a bad habit, man. I'd never felt anything like that in my life. And um, that did it for me. Yeah. That did it for me. That changed my life. And, um, um, you know, I sat in jail for 23 days. And, um, you know, I, I didn't care. You know, I said it was over. I was able to exhale and say it's over. It was all over the news. It was on the news for a whole week, CNN, everything. You know, people like, man, Tim, what happened? What happened? But I was like smiling. I was I was excited because I knew it was over. I could drop the mass. Yeah. You know what I mean? And um, and um, all of a sudden, you know, on that 23rd day, Troy Sadowski, my Georgia teammate and uh, a pastor from uh, First Baptist Woodstock came and got me out of jail and offered me an opportunity, man. Nice. And I took it. I took it, man. And that's when I surrendered to the Lord and. You know, and I'm not saying just because I did that, everything was easy, but I had to go through years and years of just counseling, man, and, and just uh, talking and being able to heal and get stuff out of me that was that was basically trying to kill me yeah. since I was a kid. And um, I tell you, Trip, where I'm at today, I hope I'm not skipping any parts, but where I'm at today, man, um, I wouldn't trade it in for a trillion dollars for all the money in the world. Yeah. The focus, my focus my uh my purpose my assignments what i'm supposed to be doing i know exactly what i'm supposed to be doing god called me to the ministry he didn't just call me but he chose me to the ministry and that's what i do today i can officially call myself a minister today or an evangelist because i share the gospel of the kingdom all around the country today yeah and um yeah i was i was going to ask about the number 23 you said okay. god was was pointing that number 23 at you well, if you read, if you read, uh, if you look at, I look at, I study God's numeric system. Yeah. And the, and the number 23 is a representation of death. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you know this, but when I had that long run against Florida, the 89 yard run, yep. the, the number that the guy wore on his back was number 23 chasing. Me. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, but he couldn't catch. Uh, in that, in that, in that, in that, like, 
That's good. And he, but he, could, he couldn't catch me, though. And, and it's just like the enemy, the devil. You know, Satan been trying to kill me for years. And it's because of the anointing on my life and what God put in me to give back to the people. Yeah. You understand what I'm saying? And I tell people I'm a curse breaker. I'm a curse breaker and I'm going to help a lot of people because I ran from it for years. A lady told me a long time ago when I was a teenager, she said, God told me to tell you, you're responsible for souls. I said, no, I ain't. And I ran, <laughs> I ran trip. But, um, but I accept that responsibility now because number one, the most important thing is my relationship with Jesus Christ, very intimate and, and, and um, knowing who I am in Jesus Christ. I know who I am today. I had no clue who I was for almost 40 years. Yeah. I'm, almost 40, 40, 40 plus years. And, you know, I'm about to be 56. I know who I am today. Yeah. You know, first, first of all, that, that's awesome. Second of all, 23 chasing after you on the field, 23 representing death, death not catching up with you. That, that's your TED talk right there. Yeah, that's um, it. That's, that's it. it. You're right, that's, man. That's good. That's good. And let me ask you this. What? Because you know, one of the really interesting things I've heard from doing a lot of these interviews and talking to people who've been suicidal, depressed, uh, substance abuse, they found themselves just at the lowest of lows. And they say that they've never really conquered it. They're constantly battling to to conquer that. And it's a continuous journey. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that really challenged a lot of these individuals more so than anything else was when this pandemic happened in 2020. Mm-hmm. What was the toughest part for you when COVID hit our nation and we pretty much went into full lockdown? I think um, I'm a people person. And what I was doing before, right when COVID hit, I was working with a youth sports ministry. Okay. And I was working with kids from age six to 14. And we traveled and played football, basketball, baseball, wrestling, everything. And I was like the the uh, the chaplain for the whole organization, mm-hmm. you know, leading the kids in Bible study and everything. And when that came to a halt and we couldn't do anything, um, it really it. I'm just realizing now how bad it messed me up. You know, um, it it harmed my company with 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 my my ex wife and I, and you know things just kind of went south. It just messed up everything. And but um. For me, it was right around the time, too, at simultaneously, when I started to feel the effects trip of the hits, the concussions. Mm. You know what I mean? I've never had a concussion, but they say you don't have to have one to feel the effects of what it, you know, what it does yeah. from your head being knocked around for so long. And around 2019, man, I started feeling different. I started mm. feeling really different, man. And, uh, you know, not so much in my memory, but just you know, irritable, um, depressed, wanting to isolate. I'm a people person, yeah. not wanting to do things. I love golf. I love fishing. I ain't, I wasn't even interested in that anymore. You know what I mean? And um, I just felt like it had me, I'm a talkative person, but it had me quiet and I was getting bad headaches. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so 2019, I started feeling a little bit different. And then, um, you know, 2020 came around and uh, me and my ex-wife had a disagreement, you know, a disagreement with some stuff and things just didn't work out and we separated and then we ended up divorcing. And, and so the last two years of my life, man, between 2019 and 20 up until last year has been the worst couple years of my life. Mm. You know, just the pain, 
everything that I went through, uh, trip, the divorce, you know, I, I love my wife, you know, um, didn't want the divorce, but, you know, coming back home and, um, you know, I had started back drinking again and, and, um, I got sick. I got pneumonia. Um, last year I had pneumonia for six weeks and I thought I was going to die. Yeah. I literally, brother, I couldn't breathe. Mm. It was like, if you ever had the breath knocked out of you, I felt like that every day, 24 seven for, for four weeks. Teresa had it real bad. Yeah, man. I, I literally yeah. thought I was going to die trip. And, um, and then I finally, you know, the medicine and, and, and doing the right thing. And, you know, it took about, it took about three weeks to totally get it out of me. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and, and that's when I made up my mind. I said, I got to get up, man. I got down to a hundred. I'm, I'm about 228 pounds, 230 right now. Yeah. I got down to 198 pounds, brother. Wow. And my mother, she was so worried, man. And I was like, I, I, I literally thought I was going to die. And um, when God brought me through that, bro, I made up my heart and my mind. I said, Lord, whatever you want, mm -hmm. I'm yours. My heart belongs to you. And let me tell you something, brother. Every since December of 2021, early 2022 in January, um, I've literally done a 180. Um, I surrendered again. I rededicated myself to the Lord and, and totally surrendered to him. And you talk about, you know, what are the, the process you take from addictions and all those things that affected us? God took the taste and delivered me from alcohol. He took the taste of drugs. He took the taste of alcohol. He took the taste trip of fornicating away from me. I'm literally a 56-year-old man. I'm celibate, want a girlfriend and a wife eventually, but yeah. I'm, he's, he's re-purifying me again. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And I'm pure, I'm clean. And I'm focused like never before, That's like awesome. never before, man. That That yeah. is awesome to hear. And I, I was actually going to ask you now, like I, I just saw you were doing, uh, we talked about this before I hit the record button, training camp with the Steelers. Talk to us about like all this, this awesome stuff. You, you were talking about how busy you've been. Uh, yeah. you, you even got people running up to your car when I'm sitting here talking to you, but talk to us about all the stuff going on with you and all the amazing okay. things you're doing now. Okay. Number one, I, um, I rededicated my life to the Lord. Um, I totally surrendered to him and things are happening in my life. Like never before, even things that I really worked and wished that would happen years ago, they're yeah. coming easy now. And I'm being actually led by the Holy spirit. You know, I walk in the spirit every day and it's, it's just, it's just, you know, it's like I'm smarter. I'm wiser now. And it's because I surrendered, you know, obedience and humility will take you a long ways. But one of the things that I'm doing now, I am an evangelist. I'm a minister. Mm -hmm. I yep. preach the gospel of the kingdom. Okay. I'm a motivational speaker too. I work with kids. I work with adults. I do leadership uh, uh, training with, with, with corporate. And right now, Chip, every since, every since January, and especially ever since I went to Pittsburgh, um, blessings have, have been literally dropping in my hands every single day. That's awesome. DMs from Facebook, people asking me to come and speak. Can I come and speak to this group? Can I come down here and, and speak at the sports banquet? Can you come to our company and motivate our company and this and that? I mean, literally, without effort, they're dropping in my hands every day. I'm literally filling up my calendar right now. I'm scheduled to go to Denver, Colorado in a couple of months to go speak to several high schools out there and a couple of elementary schools. You know, people are calling me from all over the place. And ever since the Pittsburgh trip training camp, it has been off the chain. And I think God, if you saw that video, God literally redeemed me 
in front of the, all the people and the fans in the city of Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I was the welcome that I got back from Pittsburgh, from the people of Pittsburgh, and especially the organization. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. The Roonies, I sit and talk to Art Rooney the second. We just talk and talk and talk. I asked him to write me a million dollar check again. He said, nah. <laughs> let's redo that 89 contract. Yeah, you know what I mean? Give me that 89 contract back. But, um, you know, God has ways of restoring and redeeming. Yeah. And he's doing it right now. Everything. He's giving me everything back and then so. Prime, prime example um, of just keep persevering, keep fighting, keep pushing through. And God's going to have better plans for you in the long haul. You just got to got to get past it. And That's right. Um, That's right. you you have. And, and one of the things I was going to ask you is what advice do you have for anyone out there who may be struggling with some of those personal demons? You know what, Trip? And I'm going to be uh, I, can, I only know how to be truthful. I'm honest and I'm truthful. I don't have to lie. But for me and for anybody else, you know, we need Jesus uh, even if people don't realize it, he's, he, to me, he's the most important thing in my life. And my advice to anybody that's out there struggling, even if you're not struggling, you know, mm-hmm. and we, we need Jesus as your Lord and savior. I take him as my, I receive him as my Lord and savior and being led by him makes a whole difference in my life. I mean, I still, you know, God said that, uh, you know, in this life, you will have tribulation. We still have normal human troubles mm-hmm. but you know god gets me through it you know even through all my troubles things that i may struggle with today i still have joy yeah. and the most important thing that any man or woman that could do was repent is to is to repent and ask jesus christ to come into your heart man you know and that's the advice that i would give anybody from a kid all the way up to a hundred year old man that's the advice that i would give you because you know he I'm in love with Jesus for the first time in my life, man. That's awesome. I can say that. Yeah, I can say that. And see, being in love with the Lord is helping me to reciprocate that to other people, to be in, to 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 know how to love people, to know how to love my wife if God wants me to marry again. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Know how to reciprocate that same kind of love, that agape love. And you know what, man? Like I said before, you couldn't give me a trillion dollars to turn my back on the Lord. Yeah. If you drove up with a truck with, with $10 trillion in it and say, man, turn your back on Jesus. I mean, you better get out of here. Yeah. You know what I mean? So that's my advice to any human being, yeah. you know? And so, and I was just going to ask you like, just what it means to you now uh, seeing that, you know, all the work you do with the ministry, but I could hear it in your voice. Uh, it's just prideful, full of love, full of joy, full of amazing opportunities that you got in front of you, which I think you have an incredible story that people can uh, can learn from. And hopefully listeners listening to this have so many key takeaways. When all is said and done, and people mention the name Tim Worley, what do you want your legacy to be? You know what, man? I would want my legacy to be, I don't care nothing about, you know, it's cool that people have that. I don't care nothing about my name inscribed on a building or plaques or trophies or anything like that. You know, I would want my legacy to be that, number one, he was a man of faith. Mm-hmm. You know, he was a man that loved God and he passed his faith down to his children. And so that they can continue on. And I will want people to know that, you know, outside the, my athletic career, I want people to know that, you know what, that guy sure did love God, man. Mm-hmm. And that um, he helped a lot of people. And that's my whole thing. I have a heart for people and I want to help people, man. 
You know, um, I have a hatred for poverty. I have a hatred for racism. I have a hatred for uh, injustice. You know, I have a hatred for bullying and those things that agitate me and that I have a hatred for. It's a it's a clear direction of what I'm supposed to be doing in that area. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so that's what I want to leave a legacy. And the most important out of everything is just passing down my faith, not only to my family, but to the people in the audience that God gives me, the people that, that I encounter in this life. Yep. You know what I mean? Sharing the gospel. That's awesome. It, people want to find out more about you. We already talked about, uh, look, he's got, <laughs> I'm telling you right now, he's got a TED Talk coming out. He's got a book coming out. There's going to be a, yeah. a movie one day about him. But where, if they want to find out more information about you, can they find okay. out? Well, you know what? I don't, I don't have my company anymore and I just, I just do stuff. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a 1099 guy <laughs> right now. Um, you know, I'm on Facebook. Just look up Tim Worley. I'm on Facebook. I can't even tell you my, my, my handle. I'm on Instagram and I'm also on TikTok. I can't even tell you by heart my handle, but you'll see my beautiful face on there if you go look for me. <laughs> but we'll have, uh, you answer, we'll have it in the description. Okay. You can find me on those three social media platforms and Every day I'm doing ministry. Every day I'm encouraging people, and um, and at the same time being funny, you know, doing yeah. funny stuff on there too. So uh, that's where you guys can find me. I'm going to be traveling the country shortly and speaking in in, in uh, different places all over the country. So, yep, yeah, definitely click on the description. We'll have his links. Uh, like he said, always posting videos, very entertaining. Uh, I mean, very motivating as well. So definitely go give him some support. Um, yeah. And yeah, final comments for our listeners out there. Well, you know, I just want to say something, you know, my, uh, I'm, I'm, God is teaching me how to do a lot of this stuff on my own and for myself now, which something that I really never had to do. And, you know, my, my, my ex-wife D she used to handle all the administration stuff. You know, there was a point where you couldn't even get to me without going through her Yeah. when it comes to all, you know, she knew all the, all the, the social media handles and all that stuff. So she would take care of that. But now I'm doing this stuff now, you know, and, and, uh, but you know what, man, my advice, you know, before I leave to anybody, I don't care if you're from, from five year five years old to a hundred years old, never quit. Yeah. Never quit because when you quit, it's over, never give up on your dream and never quit. You know, put your trust in God. He won't let you down. Yeah. Live an example of it right here. Yes, sir. sir. I can't thank you enough for taking time to do this. Folks, welcome back to the Shadows Podcast. What an incredible episode this was. We'll catch y'all next week.